we, we already started off with some good news today. The, uh, the guys in the sound booth actually spared you greatly by muting me when we were singing because I, it would have been bad. It would have led you out of worship. So go ahead and give them a hand, not for that, but just for everything that they do. <clears throat> it's fitting that today uh, we talk about suffering. And it's fitting that today we also talk about the special needs things. Because in many ways, this is a convergence for me. Because one of the kids who's a part of our special needs ministry is my daughter. And when we got her, diag- uh, her autism diagnosis, that was the beginning of one of the hardest years of our life, my wife and I. And as we, as throughout this year, things have been tough. And we're going to be looking at suffering today. And this has been a year where I've actually experienced a little level of suffering. So not only did we get the diagnosis of autism, but within weeks, as we're still processing that diagnosis, I got in a car accident. And then my wife got in a car accident. And then I got in a car accident. We've been in three car accidents in less than a year. Yes, we are bad drivers, but that's besides the point. Um, we also, uh, just as we were kind of getting rallied from having one car and figuring out life, uh, we got robbed in January of this year. Someone broke into our house when we were out for lunch and took all of our electronics. And we basically had to go from nice Mac, you know, Apple stuff to like secondhand PC stuff. But we got robbed. Uh, my grandpa died that month. We also have had some health issues. We've, we've actually tried to move to Tempe for a significant period of time. And, you know, people, people are, houses are just flying off, of, off the market right now. People just whisper that their house is for sale and someone buys it. But it took us like nine months. And when we finally did get into a house, <clears throat> we were going to move the very next day. And they called us up and they said, the deal's off. Now, we need stability for our daughter. And all of a sudden, we don't know where we're going to move. Apparently, the person who had, uh, was selling us the house, his wife said he was divorcing. She was divorcing him and that she would not sign the papers that day. And so we had to go and move into a janky, very expensive, furnished apartment out in Mesa. And it was a bummer. We, uh, uh, once we got there, and we were trying to figure out what to do next. Then all of a sudden we realized that we were, um, that we were going to get into the house finally. And so we went and we moved into this new house. It was the hottest day of the year and the AC broke. Which is ironic because earlier in the coldest week of the year, our heater went out. Basically, uh, things have been a little rough over the last year. And I've stubbed my toe quite a bit. All, all my sports teams, like the Cardinals, are just horrible now. And the Suns, who wants to watch the Suns anymore? So the point of all this is to say, you might not want to stand near me because you're going to get struck by lightning or something. But in all seriousness, I come to this text with you as someone who needs for this to be true. As for someone who is desperate for Jesus. Someone who, in a time of need, needs for him to come through and to be my joy and to be my hope. 
So I don't approach this lightly just as a pastor doing my job, but someone with you who needs Jesus. So we're going to open up our Bibles here. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And we have people who will be walking down the aisles who will go ahead and give you a Bible. Um, And we're going to open up to Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. That's what we're going to to read. I'll go ahead and read it for us. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Some initial observations in this text, just to kind of locate us where we're at in the book of Romans. You see, we're now in Romans chapter 5, and Romans 1 through 4 has basically been a summary of the beautiful gospel, a theological explanation of the gospel. We've learned that we are righteous and we are alienated from God and we are distant from God, but God brought us near to him through the righteousness of Christ. He justified us, and and through the good work of Jesus, we can be made right with God. So in chapters 1 through 4, Paul really takes some serious time to summarize the gospel. But in chapter 5, where we're at now, he begins to talk about the implications of this beautiful gospel. That this gospel is not merely some theological things just to be believed, but they are to be believed and then crash into our life and shape us profoundly. So four things that we'll see in chapter 5 that are implications of the gospel. That with, the first is that we have peace with God. That the gospel reconciles us and gives us peace with God. And that's what Ricardo talked about last week. The second one is that we can know the love of God and behold the love of God. That we are loved by God. And that's what Ricardo is going to talk about next week. But what we're going to focus on today are the two other things that we have hope in God and joy from God in the midst of suffering. So where we're going today, just two things I want to point to. That in the midst of suffering, God, the gospel gives us joy and gives us hope. So let's start by uh, looking at at joy. In Romans 5, 3 and 4, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Remember that statement right there, rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, right off the bat, I want to point out something that that should strike us as very strange. This phrase of rejoicing in our sufferings. Because that's not normal. If you're around Christian circles and you hear this a lot, it may start to seem normal. We may become inoculated to it. But it is not normal to rejoice in our sufferings. Nobody sees someone about to get hit by a car and is rooting for the car, right? No, you don't rejoice in that. You don't rejoice in the sufferings. It's strange. Now, we see this, just think about the world we live in. 
We don't rejoice in suffering. When you get sick, you can go to the, you probably have some friends who will go to a, a Walgreens or a Hallmark store and they'll, they'll see these cards and they'll, they'll get a Hallmark card from the get well soon section. And it'll have some nice little poem and like a picture of a kitten or something like that and it'll say get well soon. And that's encouraging. But who of us has ever gotten a card from the get sick soon section? None of us. None of us have a little card that says, wishing you a nice case of malaria in the months to come. No, that is horrible and that is mean. Every year we get, in May, we get invited to graduation parties. But whoever gets invited to the I flunked out of school party and we all celebrate that. If that was the case, I would have been the one throwing that party, but I didn't because it was lame. <clears throat> it's not normal to see sufferings and rejoice. Because if it were, the dentist would be like Justin Bieber. Everyone would just can't, couldn't wait to see him screaming and wanting to get the autograph. Young couples would not go on dates to nice restaurants, but they'd go spend a romantic evening at the DMV or, <laughs> or go visit the IRS or something. See, I had this, this football coach growing up. He was actually somewhat of a father figure to me. I lived with him for a period of time. And he was this big drill sergeant. He was kind of a conflicted guy because he was a drill sergeant in the Marines, but he also worked for Revlon. So he, he was kind of internally <laughs> confused a little bit. Uh, but this guy always would say crazy stuff like no pain, no gain. And I think his main goal in life was to get us to go through some pain so that we'd get tougher. So he'd wake us up in the mornings by grabbing our toes and just running the other direction. He would, uh, he would pour water on us. He'd make us run laps. As a football coach, he would just look at some kid standing there for no reason and just make him do 50 push-ups just because. This guy, he was, he was crazy and he, and he wanted pain. He would always, he always, this is beside the point, but he would always say these crazy statements that we couldn't even understand, like when you see the lamb, eat it, and he'd be yelling at us. We'd run into the football game and think, what is the lamb, and what does it look like to eat it? But this guy was kind of a sadistic drill sergeant, and a lot, a lot of times, people will approach the, the biblical text on suffering and, and wonder, is Jesus calling us to a sadistic vision where we just enjoy and love all kinds of pain and suffering? Is Jesus a, a, a drill sergeant? And I don't think that this is what this passage is talking about. I think it is right when we see pain and suffering and we, and we don't like it. We want to move away from it because intuitively and biblically, we know that it's not the way it's supposed to be. We, we are not supposed to stand at the funeral of a loved one. We are not supposed to be people who week after week, even though we're qualified and want to work, have to fill out unemployment papers. We are not supposed to be people who have such tension and alienation within our families that we pick up a phone and we just stare at the, the phone, at the name of the person that we want to call. But there's so much woundedness and so much hurt that we can't bring ourselves to make that call. It's not supposed to be that way. And the reason why it is that way is because, like it says in, in Genesis 3, 
that sin has entered into the world. As, as we all, as humanity, rebels from God, not only does it alienate us from God, but it begins ripping the fabric of all of his world. And so we live in a world where things are disordered and there's pain and there's suffering and there's tears and it is not good, it is not right. And we know when we read the Bible that there is a day that Jesus will come back and make everything right. He will judge, he will restore, he will redeem. But uh, this passage, especially this first part here, this part about joy, isn't just about looking into the future and saying, one day our, our, our suffering is going to be over. But somehow, in the mystery and magnificence of the gospel, God is able to take suffering, this very thing that distorts and, and breaks up our life and brings pain and flips it on its head so that it becomes a very means by which God shapes us and, and into the image of Christ and shows us more and more of Christ. So the question is, why does this passage talk about rejoicing in suffering? What are we supposed to rejoice about? And I believe that the answer is here in the text. We rejoice because of the internal work that God does through suffering. That suffering becomes an instrument in God's hands that he uses to shape us to be more like Jesus, to love him more, to live into his kingdom more. And so when we look at uh, these verses, we see in verse 3 that, that there's, there's, there's three things that it talks about that, the, that suffering produces. It produces, uh, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And so he's pointing to the internal work within us. Anytime when you're studying the Bible and you see something repeated, it probably means that the author is trying to emphasize something. And, And in just one little sentence, he uses the word three times, which is produces. And suffering, what it does is it produces the good stuff within us. The change that we need, the sin that we need thrown off, the clearer vision of of God that we need. And so it's an instrument that God uses. Now, it would be very easy to look at this passage and try to figure out exactly what the, the process is, as if it were some linear thing like first you suffer, then you endure, then you get character, and then you have hope. But I don't think that's what it's trying to talk about. There are many passages like this within, with, within the, the Bible, and they all kind of say a little bit different things about what it produces in us. But I think what, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to point to an internal uh, whirlpool of gospel change that happens when we suffer and submit ourselves to Jesus. When the pain comes and we draw near, and when the Spirit draws us near, God changes us and transforms us through suffering. So how does the Spirit, how does the Spirit use suffering to change us and transform us? Well, I think one way is that it exposes our sin. You know it's really easy to be nice and cordial 
and, and to have kind of a happy chipper attitude when everything's going good in life. But when you are driving in a car with no air conditioner at 3 p.m. in Arizona, that's when the real stuff comes out. That's when you're chasing people down with road rage and stuff. And when, when suffering comes, when pain comes, oftentimes it brings sin to the surface so that we can see it. Sin that, and, and unbelief that we might not have seen before. In many ways, it's a mirror that shows us what needs to be changed. And, and so once we see that come to the surface, we can bring it to God. And we can say, God, here is my sin. I confess that this is wrong. Change me. Transform me. Make me more like Christ. I want to, to uh, not, I want to have distance from this sin. I want to hate this sin. And we wouldn't know otherwise our sin oftentimes unless we go through some stuff, some really hard stuff. I'll give you an example of this in my own life. I mentioned earlier that I was robbed. I was robbed in January. And what happened was my, my family, we actually had my mom in, in town. She came to town to visit, and I was trying to convince her to move to Arizona. Uh, but then we walk into my house. And I open the door, and I see that the back door is open. And I thought immediately, Jenny, why'd you leave the back door open? But then all of a sudden, I'm looking around, and my house is messy. And all of the electronics are gone. And then I start to see that the door is still moving, as if they were still in the house when I started to try to get in, and then they bolted out. So I grabbed a shovel that I had nearby, and I ran through the house like a crazy man, looking for someone to just hit with this shovel. And I would have hit someone if I would have found them. And I think part of that, there's an instinct to protect my family. But what isn't godly and what isn't Christ-like is the week after that. See, I, I spent most of my time daydreaming about what it would have been like to catch one of those people and to beat them up with the shovel. I had whole Bruce Lee scenarios where I'm like doing flips and I'm hitting one guy and then I throw the shovel and it gets another guy. Uh, and, and I just wanted vengeance. I was walking around my neighborhood giving people the stink eye, just mad thinking, was it you? You don't know the kind of shovels I have, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and it brought to the surface this fear, this need for control, this rage that was laying dormant underneath but wasn't Christ-like. And if you don't know a little bit of my background, I've, I've done a lot of faith-based uh, international relations and, and I've done a, a lot of Christian-Muslim relations and those sorts of things. And I've often talked about needing to love our enemies and I've talked a big game about it, and it's really easy to do when all you have is hypothetical enemies. But once I had someone who had violated us, who had been in my bedroom, who had come and taken my, my cool Apple stuff, then I knew that, that uh, this was not as easy as I thought. And I had this, this anger and this rage, and I had to bring it to God. And my wife and I, we prayed and we asked God to give us a love, a sincere and deep love for the person who robbed our house. And we asked him to change us and to change our fearful hearts into hearts that trust in him. And I think 
you know, over the course of a couple weeks, he really did work on us. And he, the, the Spirit did some amazing work to where we actually genuinely loved the people who robbed us. So what, what we decided to do as a witness to the community, also as a way of really expressing our forgiveness to the person who robbed us. See, many people in our neighborhood had been robbed, so we figured that they kind of were around. So we built this, or we didn't build it. We took a poster board, uh, and we wrote a note to those who robbed us. You guys can go ahead and put that up there. I'll go ahead and read you what it says. It says, to those who robbed our house, please know that you are loved and forgiven. We pray for God's blessing on your life. The robbery proved that you are skilled and intelligent. May your hearts be warmed by the coals of Christ's love, and may your abilities be used for the good of our neighborhood. Love, Jim and Jenny. And then in the corner there, you'll see we actually had our daughter draw a picture for them as a gift to the person who robbed us. Uh, It's not a very good picture, so, you know, you can judge what you want with that. No. But it really did give us a love for this person. And I thought this was the end of the story. But it wasn't. One day, I was working in my yard. And uh, and again, with a shovel, doing some gardening stuff. (laughs) You you know that you have found my house when you found uh, a house with half-finished gardening projects. That's just the deal. So um, I'm out there working in the yard, and someone comes up to me, and he says... Hey, listen, I got an iPad, and uh, I found it in your yard last night, and I wanted to give it to you. And, I, and in the moment, I would have, you know, typically I would have just said, okay, give me the iPad. But I, the Spirit was at work, and I said, listen, we didn't have an iPad that was lost in our yard. We had one that was stolen from our house. So if you... If you really want to, if that iPad was really found here, then you need to go find the owner. And after trying to give it to me and not being able to give it to me, he finally looked at me and he said, look, is there anything I can do? Is there anything, any housework I can do or yard work? I'll do it for free. And it became very apparent that this was the person who had robbed me and who was in some way trying to pay back. And you could tell that they were, their conscience, his conscience was sort of tormented. And he felt guilty and, and all these things going on. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I don't have any yard work for you, any chores or anything like that. But if you really like yard work so much, why don't we plant a garden together? But we'll do it as friends, not as you working for me. And we'll harvest it together and we'll have some meals together and it'll be great. And you could tell that there was just something going on in him. I felt like it was the spirit at work in him. And instead of really talking about the gardening stuff, he just started telling me his story, telling me his hurts and his pains, asking me questions about God. And I think think some of the questions that, that he was asking actually were prompted by my journal, which he had stolen, uh, strangely enough. <laughs> I think that's kind of, yeah, so it was an interesting thing. Um, but so he's, we're, we're having this conversation, and the spirit was moving. And believe it or not, I was standing there talking to this guy with my shovel in hand. The same shovel that if he would have come around two weeks earlier, he would have been hit with. 
But now I was leaning on this shovel as I prayed for him and listened to his story. We, kind of, we made plans that if he didn't go to jail and if those sorts of things didn't happen, that we would get together. Um, haven't seen him since. But it was this very powerful moment. And I felt like in that moment, the Spirit had really done a good work had changed us and made us more loving toward our neighbor and more loving toward God because I came to see myself as the very one who God had forgiven even though I had wronged and violated him. And so I wouldn't have changed that process for anything in the world. Another way that, that suffering, that God uses suffering in our lives is he uses it to make us cling to Jesus. So often, when hard things come, we cling and hold on to so many other things. We hold on to money. We hold on to status. We hold on to our family. We, we hold on to everything else. But when, in suffering, oftentimes, God begins to remove those things, to remove our health, to remove our money, and to remove some of the connections that we had, to remove the job that we had. So that all we can do is cling to Jesus. Which may sound harsh, but it is an an incredibly merciful thing that God does for us. Because here's the thing. In the world that we live in, in the turbulent storms of this world, there is only one thing that floats, and it is Jesus. There's only one thing that we can grip to that can actually hold us. There is only one thing that we grip and we realize is actually gripping us and carrying us along, and that is Jesus. So when God mercifully takes things away and only leaves us Jesus, he is doing us a great thing. So therefore, we can rejoice when we see suffering coming our way. Not because we we just like to be hurt all the time, but we know that God has a good purpose within it to transform us and to make us more like him. You see, suffering is like a blade. It cuts and it hurts. But a blade is either good news or bad news, depending on whose hands it's in. And we need to know that God is not someone who's out to get us and who's trying to stab us in the back, but that the blade he holds is the blade of a surgeon. He holds the scalpel. And what what he does in suffering is he mercifully removes the cancerous parts of our character. He mercifully, mercifully, mercifully shapes us more into the image of Jesus, takes out our sin, takes out that which is toxic within us, the stuff that we need to, to, to get rid of. And so when we suffer, it is okay to feel deep emotions. It is okay to cry. It is okay to, to, to be frustrated and confused. And you're not less holy because you don't, you're not just happy all the time. But here's the thing. We do have a deeper sense of joy because just like someone who's going into surgery, when the surgery's over, it's gonna hurt, but they know that it's accomplishing a good purpose. And we have joy in what God is doing when he uses the scalpel of sanctification in our lives. If you are someone who's going through suffering 
and you want to press in deeper into this. I want to encourage you that we have something going on here. It's called Redemption Exodus Groups, and Tim Anderson leads it. It's a 12-week study where you go through a book, and you're part of a community that really addresses the hurts and the pains that we go through. And so I really want to encourage you to fill out one of those info cards and connect with us about it if you've gone through some suffering, which basically means all of us because we've all gone through some stuff. So I just want to encourage you with that. So that's joy. We can have joy in the midst of suffering because of the good news of Jesus. But now I want to turn to hope. See, because the gospel not only gives us present joy, but it gives us future hope. It gives us a gaze into the future and gives us hope in something substantial. Let's read Romans 5.5. It says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Paul is now talking about a hope, a hope that in the end will not put us to shame. We will not get to the end of our life and think that we have wasted our life or, and that we have put our hope in something that wasn't strong enough. This hope that's connected to this overwhelming love of God that he pours out on us through the Spirit. See, what is hope? Hope is not wishful thinking. We've talked about that before. But it's a, it's a future orientation. It looks to the end of the story. And if you flip your Bible to the very end, you'll realize that in the end, Jesus does away with all suffering. He makes everything new again. He puts all the, he wipes away the tears from our eyes and heals the, the places within us that are, have the deepest tears. And that there is a day, there is a day when suffering will be vanquished and gone. We don't know what it is, but there is a countdown clock. And one day, sufferings and pains, time will be up, no more. And everything will be made right again. But for now, we know that that's not the case. So we ache, and we go through the pain but our eye is on the horizon, our eye is in the future, knowing that, that our suffering now, no matter how bad it is, is merely temporary. And that the, the, the vastness of the future with no pain will far outweigh the pain that we go through now. I want to give us a preview. Romans 8 is where Paul really gets into this. And I probably should... Leave it for Ricardo to get there, but it's so good that I'm just going to sneak it in right now a little bit. Let's read Romans 8, 18 through 23. And I'm going to read this big chunk of scripture to us. And I just want it to wash over you and give you a vision of the future, a vision of what God is doing. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation 
has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This points to a future day of glory. A future day of glory that we and all of creation are longing for. We're waiting for. We can't wait to throw off this, this pain, the painful aspects of this world and run into the world that we were made for when God restores and renews and makes this world the way it's supposed to be. But it's not that way now. And we groan now. But we realize that the present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us because the weight of God's glory is so much heavier and weightier and stronger than the world of pain we live in now. But this passage talks about how we groan. And we should groan. And we should groan when we see the world in pain and in suffering. We groan in longing for that day, and we groan as, we, as a rejection of the brokenness of this world. One of the times that we groan is when we read the newspaper, or in 2013 when you log on to the newspaper. So we don't really hold newspapers anymore. Uh, but let me just read some of the headlines to you that I saw this morning, and let this sink into our hearts and let us groan. The first one is this. Is U.S. going to war with Syria? The next one. Fukushima radiation level spikes. Teens hide from parents online. Georgia man guilty of shooting a baby. House slides off cliff in landslide. And when we read these things, and these aren't foreign things, because any day you pick up a new newspaper, you're going to read something like that. We groan because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it should cause us to groan and long for the future when God makes everything right. We should even groan on some of the ridiculous things. Like, for example, they added a few words to the dictionary. Believe it or not, here's what they, what they added. Three words in particular. Twerking. Selfie and girl crush. These were the three that they thought were so important that they needed to be added to the dictionary. If nothing else, we should just groan with annoyance about something like that. <laughs> Things aren't right. But when Jesus comes and returns and restores all things, he remakes the news headlines. He converts the news headlines. What, imagine what a newspaper might be like when the kingdom of God is fully restored and he makes everything right. I'm going to propose a couple of uh, headlines that we might read. Instead of reading about war in Syria, we might read about a debate over which ethnic group in Syria gets to serve the other one some of the best falafel they can make. Who knows? Maybe there's another one. Instead of Fukushima's radiation level spiking what if we read about the joy of Fukushima, their joy level absolutely spiking, that their health absolutely spiking? 
I know this is crazy here, but what if we read about teens admiring and respecting parents? What if instead of hearing about a house that falls off of a cliff, we hear about excellent craftsmanship that shows a house that has been built on a cliff and has been secure for thousands of years and has no signs of doing otherwise? What if, what if, Instead of adding ridiculous words to the dictionary, some words actually get removed from the dictionary in that day. Some words become obsolete and not needed anymore. For example, divorce, cancer, war, slander, rape, loneliness, and all of the other words that speak of the brokenness of this world wiped out of the dictionary because of the renewed world that he has created has no more need for him. What if in that day, the autistic child who can't speak is finally able to shout the good news and to praise God and to tell the world all the mercy that they experience from God? What if we're finally able to call that loved one and make that phone call and we are able to connect with them and reconcile What if we don't hear about rumors of wars? What if we don't hear about uh, the pain? What if we don't hear about cancer anymore? But joy is the everyday experience. That is the future that we are headed to, and that is what we put our hope in. And because we have that hope, we can live in this world as aching and groaning visionaries who endure pain for now, but look out into the horizon and look out into future, knowing that one day Jesus looks at the pain and says, you're through, my kingdom is here, I am making all things new. And that is a beautiful thing that can sustain us in our most painful hours. Now some people might think that that's pie in the sky wishful thinking. You might think that that's a fairy tale that Christians tell ourselves to kind of, uh, to, to help us just kind of ignore the pain of this world. But I want to challenge that because I think that this is the, the, the most credible, substantive thing that we can put our hope in, namely Jesus. And I think that the other things that we put our hope in are, aren't as strong. Think about what we put our hope in otherwise. Many times we put our hope in money. And we try to make enough money and get enough assurance so that we never have to suffer again. But let me tell you this. The most secure bank in the world with the thickest walls and the biggest safes is not strong enough to keep suffering out. That the world is filled with rich guys who have either died or who are going to die. And that there, is, that there is nothing you can do to pay off suffering. It doesn't operate in the same currency that we do. And we will never make enough money to alleviate suffering from us completely, and especially ultimate suffering. Now, some people, they don't have a lot of money, but they, do, they are kind of tough. They have this this self-will, and they think, you know what I'm going to do? It's all about me, and I'm going to just kind of tough it out, and I'm going to endure through the suffering, and I am going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and make it. I hate to admit this, but I'm just going to put it out there. There is a song 
that kind of speaks to this mentality, which is always in my head. At no point in the day is this song not in my head. And I don't even like this song. It just always, it's, you know, it's catchy and it gets stuck in your head. And after I tell you what it is, it's going to be stuck in your head too. It's the, it's the Kelly Clarkson song. It's the song that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger song, right? Like it always gets stuck in your head. And that's the mentality that a lot of people have in life. They say, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, which is kind of true. Like you you go through some hard times, you're going to get stronger. But there's one problem with that statement when it says what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Something's going to kill you. That's the problem with that statement. So you can get a lot stronger until that thing comes, but then that thing wins. It kills you. So this no pain, no gain, this tough guy mentality isn't going to work. It can't, you can't put your hope in your own strength and ability because one day it's going to catch up to you. And some of us put our hope in science and technology, which I think that there are a lot of really good things in science and technology, but we know that it's not going to figure it out completely. We may hope for this this magic pill that you could take that cures diseases or that they're going to figure out some procedure to help you live forever or to fix suffering or, or whatnot. But just watch a commercial for some of the medicines that they put out there. And yes, it may cure your headache, but you'll also be vomiting, you'll be blind, you're going to lose your left toe. It's, it's just going to be a lot worse. And even if they did make a pill that was able to to heal you or a procedure that got rid of even the worst diseases, technology can be a part of the problem and science can be a part of the problem because there's someone in another room somewhere in the world who's figuring out how to make pocket-sized nuclear bombs or learning how to make cheeseburgers less, less healthy and more addictive or something like that. So science and technology, we really don't, we can't put our hope in that completely either. And so I think it's actually a fairy tale to put our hope in any of those things. I think those are the fairy tale because throughout history, none of them have proven to work. There has never been enough money to alleviate suffering completely. There has never been someone strong enough to overcome it completely. And science and technology have never figured out how to get rid of it. Never, not with one person, except there is one person who has figured out the deal with suffering, and that is Jesus. He is the one who not only entered into the most horrific suffering we can probably imagine on the cross, but he came out the other side victorious in three days resurrected. He's the one who's gone to the other side through death and through pain, and he is the one when he says that, that we can have hope in him who has some credibility because he's the only one who's proven it. And when we look at Jesus, and what we see here in this text, it talks about a love that, or a hope that will not put us to shame. And it's connected to this overwhelming love that God pours onto us by his spirit. I think that there are two aspects of this love that are two sides of the same coin, that are both equally important. On one hand, you have an objective aspect of his love, an objective aspect that his love compelled him to go to a real cross objectively, that he died on that cross objectively, and that three days later, 
There, there was a tomb and no one was in it. And you could go to the Middle East right now and there will still be an empty tomb because the one who is in that to- tomb overcame death and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is the one who is telling us that what happened on the cross is that he dealt with our sins and that he has given us a real hope that we can trust in where he will make all things new. Objectively, they put his their, their hands into his wounds. They saw him resurrected. And that we know that there was something unique that split history in half that gives credibility to this hope in the midst of suffering. But then there's also a subjective, experiential aspect of it. Because the, the love of God is not just a time and a date in history, but it's something that we draw near to every day. God does not stand at some distant land or stand in some distant time of history, but is present with us as his believers who are indwelt with the Spirit. And even when all people abandon us, even when pain is so, so terrible that we can't even speak, even when it seems like everything is gone and no one is around and it is the dark night of the soul, there is one still present with you, the one who created you, who is your God, who is your comforter, the one who is willing to receive you in that dark night of the soul when, when we feel the pain. And we can throw ourselves on him and he throws his love on us like a dump truck. And this is the one that we can go to. In the midst of suffering, we can have joy because of what God is doing within us. We can have hope because of what we see him doing in the future of renewing all things. And in the meantime, we can cling to his love by the Spirit. Let's pray.